Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following program includes discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Jude, whose husband and mother-in-law both killed themselves. Hello, Jude. Hi, Shirley. So, Jude, on the day your husband killed himself, did he do anything out of the ordinary that made you suspect that he might kill himself that day? Not that day, but the previous day I had my suspicions and I fronted him and he said no, he was feeling in a better space. So he was able to do things that day that he couldn't have, have done prior to then. So I accepted that was the state that he was in. And so what did he do on that particular day? How did he spend his time before he killed himself? Um, what we usually did, I had a phone call that I had to make. So he took our dog for a walk in Hagley Park and came back quite happy and content. And then we were having our cars, respective cars, so he took my car in and brought his car back and did the changeover. So nothing unusual about that. He was just pottering around in the garage and I was keeping an eye on him to make sure that he, things were okay. And then we were, had arranged to go for a, a bus ride on the shuttle because this was pre-earthquake times, this was 2003, and we were going to go and get a dog collar a new dog collar and so at the last minute he balked it going and I challenged him as to why he said he just didn't feel like going out in public at present and also he had an email from a colleague in South Africa who wanted uh, an expert opinion from him on a court case that he was working on and so he wanted to stay home and answer that, that email so I accepted that was the way it was and said I'll see you later but the really good thing about it on the doorstep both of us said to each other I love you so that was the last thing he ever said to me So for all intents and purposes it was a pretty ordinary day you were engaging in ordinary activities you said goodbye that you loved each other and off you went Yep Describe Exactly right Describe your husband Oh, he was a wonderful man. He was uh, he was 55 when he died. He had been um, a veterinary surgeon, which was his passion for a long time, but also brought up on a farm and wanted to continue farming. And um, very well respected in his profession. His area of expertise was small animals and small animal surgery, and also he had a... Uh, contract with a local zoo so once a week he would go to the zoo park 
and uh, do whatever he had to do on that particular day. So he yeah, he was held in very high esteem in the veterinary world. Uh, in 1996, he had a bit of a health glitch in that all of a sudden his eye closed and nothing was found as to why and it gradually reopened but he decided that he didn't want to be a vet anymore, he wanted to concentrate, wanted to concentrate on farming and at this time we had a farm about an hour and a half away from where we lived and a farm manager on that farm. So we um, moved up to the farm and he started off farming and then um, decided he would take up a part-time position which he resigned from two and a half years later at a local veterinary uh, company. Um, so he's very involved in the community, very involved in national organisations, very giving and loving man, held in high esteem in the community and amongst his friends. You also described to me how he had both a very sort of a masculine side and a feminine side. Pardon, sorry, I didn't get your question, Shirley. You described to me how he had both a very masculine side, being involved in rugby, but also a yes. feminine side, being involved in floral art. Yes, yeah, his mother was very good at floral arranging, and when he was um, president of the local AMP society, he introduced a men's floral arts section to the range of activities that the competitions, etc., that the, the uh, <coughs> AMP show ran. And so he arranged um, pretty clever sort of piece of artwork, floral artwork. And uh, yeah, he, he was good at that. He also enjoyed the flower garden designed our flower garden on the farm um, so yeah he and he was into baking and cooking a very good cook and in addition to that he represented the Manitoto in rugby Manitou Manitou yeah. yes yes until he was summoned to the uh, dean of the, of the veterinary school saying you have to decide whether you want to be a professional rugby player or a vet, but you can't do both, so he chose to be a vet. Right. Now, you, you mentioned that your husband's mother also killed herself. How did your yes. husband respond to her doing that? Absolutely shattered. He couldn't understand how that, how that could have happened. He understood the reasons why um, that she might have done it, but uh, he... He just, he didn't realise the impact that it would have had on so many people and how someone who was like him, which, you know, well, not retrospectively, but held in such high regard in the community yet had not enough self-love that uh, she jumped off a bridge. And ironic then that he too killed himself 15 years later. Yes, Absolutely. So what led up to him killing himself? Well, uh, there were lots of factors. I've counted 11 different reasons that were causing him concern, and I guess that they compounded and became just insurmountable in his mind, despite the fact that um, he, you know, he was loved, respected, adored by his grandchildren and all those kind of things, he just couldn't see 
uh, past the fact that he was worthless. Did he describe to you the state he found himself in? Yes. I mean, he was very upfront. He went and sought uh, help from the medical profession, and um, we asked, I asked him blunt questions like, did you have a plan? And he told me he did, and he told me what the plan was. And he also told the doctor what his plan was. He saw the doctor, I think it was on the Thursday or the Friday, and he died on the Monday. So he'd seen him, um, you know, prior to, and he told him of his plan. And the doctor wanted to um, have him admitted to hospital, but there wasn't space. So it was left up to me, more or less, to decide whether he was uh, deteriorating and therefore could be admitted as an emergency um, patient or it was fine for him to wait till later the, the next week. So he was receiving treatment and did you notice a yes. deterioration? Um, he was all off and up and down. I mean, you know, I'd ask him what he, what he was feeling and he said he felt like he was in a tunnel and there was no light at the end of it and he was in water and the water was gradually creeping up over his mouth and up to his nose and then almost drowning him. The impression I got was that shortly before he killed himself though he seemed to have a bit of a, a lift in mood? Yes, yeah, as I described at the beginning but this is what he'd said to me the previous previous week. Uh, he wasn't eating very well, he wasn't sleeping very well, and as a consequence neither was I. And if he was, if I woke up during the night and he wasn't there, then I leapt out of bed to see where he was. I was that anxious about him. This was in probably um, two weeks, ten days to two weeks before he took his life. So um, yeah, it fluctuated a bit. He was taking medication and he kept on saying it's not working, not working, expecting me to be an instant response. It was Prozac that he was prescribed and I said to him, well, what did you say to a small animal owner like a dog or a cat if they came in and said, you prescribed these tablets for me 10 days, two weeks ago and nothing's happening, what would you say to them? And he said... I'd tell them to wait. And I said, well, if you would tell your clients to wait, why can't you? But he didn't have an answer. Mm -hmm. How did you feel towards him after he killed himself? It just felt so, so sad that he didn't realise how many people loved him, how much love he was surrounded by, and how he just couldn't see that. That was, that was my um, profound, most profound feeling, that just utter sorrow. And his mother had a similar inability to see how much she was loved and valued. Yes, indeed. Although it was slightly different in her circumstance because she had cancer and had told us that she had had a clean bill of health where, in fact, she hadn't. And also, <clears throat> one of the sons was in financial, a bit of financial strife, and I think she probably thought that by her taking her life, sacrificing her life, it would help him out. So how do you, how did you cope with his death? 
Um, it was a struggle because he asked me to promise not to tell the boys. And so some of his family knew, but the boys didn't. And one of my sons was a doctor and he was really angry with me that I didn't tell him. And I said that Lindsay asked me not to tell you and I couldn't break his trust. And he said, but mum, you could have. And I said, you don't understand, I just couldn't. So that was quite a barrier there between us for quite some time. And it wasn't until about three years ago when he took me out for dinner on Mother's Day that he said to me, Mum, I know I was angry with you at the time and that I felt you should have told me, but thinking about it after and over all these years, I realised that if you couldn't do anything for him, then it was probably unlikely that I could. So it was kind of like I'd been absolved and forgiven, which was a huge relief because I always felt that when I was dealing with him, there was this big barrier between us. So you felt torn between your commitment to your husband who'd asked you not to tell your children that he was suffering from depression and their desire to know and their belief that you should have told them. Yes, it wasn't... um, it was only this one particular son. I had three children. Uh, my daughter was in no state to rationalise with because of other other issues. But my son, who lives in the state uh, and has done so for many years, he was totally understanding of, of my predicament and there was no barrier there at all. So to deal with the sorrow... Personally, did you engage in any activities that helped you lift your mood? And like you, you mentioned, writing poetry and yeah, I used to. Um, I've, I've never written poetry before, and never not done the same since. But it certainly was very cathartic to just put out my um, my feelings on paper. And uh, I remember one that I wrote. That just, I was a mess of tears when I wrote it and my second son when I was on holiday with him said to me um, what do you miss most about dad and I said I miss his skin and so I wrote about that and it was bringing tears to my eyes right now as I, um, as I recollect it but that was really powerful and uh, I also uh, sought counselling so that was also very helpful. I used to go once a week to see a very, very kind and helpful counsellor because not only was I dealing with suicide, but there were other family issues which were quite co- complex and um, distressing. I probably would be the best way to say it. So uh, she was a safe, safe haven for me. My brother and sister, both who lived in Auckland at the time, were absolutely wonderful, amazing. My sister just dropped everything and flew straight down and took over. Can can be a little bit um, overpowering, but this time I was quite happy to be under her powers. <laughs> but they were amazing, and they have been ever since. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember you telling me that at the time after your husband died, you wrote to the newspaper. Why did you do that? Because I wanted to draw attention to the rate of suicide in older men. Um, he was 55, as I said before, and the emphasis had been on younger men in their 20s or teenagers to 30s, and there's a silent epidemic at that stage of older men 
um, farmers among them, which is quite a high rate in farming, farmers' suicide. And so I wanted to draw people's attention to this fact and to say that there is help out there. Um, as an aside, we both used to be lifeline counsellors, so used to dealing with um, people talking about that kind of thing. And I said to the interviewer that I wanted to do this, but um, under two conditions. One, that I wasn't named, n neither me nor my family had their real names, and the second was the location, but it was just a generic interview. Um, and so that went really well, and it was a huge, um, almost full-page uh, full interview with all associated mental health services at the bottom of the page. So it was, it was quite profound, and I was really pleased to have done that. I also spoke to a group of farmers in North Canterbury, um, one organisation that Lindsay was involved with, and they wanted to set up a scholarship fund for him in his name. So he, uh, so another woman and I both spoke about our husband's suicide to this group of farmers, which was very. I felt that was getting it out there because it, you know, people don't talk about their partners or husbands taking their lives and it's not the kind of thing that I offer to anybody and everybody that I meet either because it's none of their business really. Mm -hmm. Since you wrote to the newspaper and they published that article, do you think there's been a change in a recognition of the incidence of suicide amongst older men? Yeah, I think there has been, especially since this was in 2003. And after that time, there's been uh, the global financial crisis and a lot of farmers were suffering and going to the wall because of their farming enterprise no longer being economic. And there was a big push in the farming community about mental well-being and um, people going around the countryside talking to farming groups and generally older age groups, men and women. Um, so I think the profile has been have been raised, but not specifically because of my uh, interview, but just that the profile has been raised more. And my team, of course, has also helped in that regard as, as well as John Kerwin. Is there any message that you give to people who've had someone close to them kill themselves? Um, to be strong, and you know, I can remember going to a victim support group or suicide sufferers group or whatever they called it and someone said you get over this and I remember saying no I'll never get over it and and my counsellor wisely told me once about you never get around it over it or around but you get around it by encompassing it as part of your life and she drew an illustration of two circles the uh, outermost circle was me as a person and the innermost circle was my grief surrounding my husband's suicide and at that time the circles were almost um, close, no, closely aligned there was hardly a gap between the two and then she grew, drew another selection of circles as over time that circle of the grief associated with Lindsay's death would diminish but it would never go away and that is absolutely true. So that's the way to cope with it. The other thing that I found when I saw people and they asked me how I was, I used a number scale. I said, oh, today I feel like three out of 10. 
So that was a way of letting them know that I didn't feel very good at all about anything. And other times, you know, it was you know, eight out of ten, I'm having a good day today. And I found that numbering system was quite uh, quite an easy way to not have to fully vocalise and bore them to tears, probably. Um, and they wished they never, never asked the question in the first place. Right, so that helped them to gauge what sort of um, level of support perhaps you required in that situation yeah. on that day. Yes, exactly right. So it was a two-fold thing. It was from twofold things for, for both me and them um, to assess what's going on in my life. Yeah. Is there anything you say say to others, even your own children or people, through your work in Lifeline, to dissuade them from killing themselves? Um. It, it honestly depends on what stage they're at, because at the stage that both my um, husband and mother-in-law were at, I think it, nobody could make any difference. They had such a mindset of how they appeared in the world that that was unalterable. But in the early stages, uh, you know, just to em- emphasise that they are surrounded by love, they are there's no one has huge expectations on them except to accept that love that's there and not reject it. And did you find your work through Lifeline helpful to you to overcome your loss of your husband? Um, possibly. But one of the worst experiences I ever had on Lifeline was I had a man who rang up and was telling me that he was going to take his life because he was belonging to a church and they told him that he was no longer accepted in this particular church, which was a huge part of his life. And fortunately for me, I had an observer on the phone and I think that by our discussion, I managed to change his his way of thinking because he, at the end of the conversation, he thanked me profusely for helping him now that doesn't mean to say that he didn't do anything different the next day, but at the time we stopped talking. And I remember getting off the phone and bursting into tears and saying to this woman, I might have saved that man's life, but I couldn't save my husband's life. Why? And just, just sobbing unconsolably for quite some time. So um, I had the skills to, to hand on to uh, and. Um, an anonymous person that's what I'm trying to say but it seemed that I didn't have the skills to save my husband's life but I've come to realise that as I said before that nothing I could have said or done would have probably made any difference That's right So Jude thank you so much for sharing your story because by doing so you really bring the subject of suicide and death out of the shadows so thank you so much thank you Shirley for, for talking to me Okay. you've been listening to The Final Curtain ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app At Death Café Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times.
If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, there are some ways to get help. The best person to contact is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. 1737 Need to Talk? Just call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 The Suicide Crisis Helpline 0508 828 Youthline 0800 376 or text 234 between 8am and midnight. The Depression Helpline 0800 111 and Samaritans 0800 726 666. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.